welcome to a very damp start to autumn for many people as climate change continues to take its toll. But for Tuesday Home Time today, with me, Jim Bartlett, we're looking at a fight back against media control by the government in Malaysia with Lee Tan, an extraordinary unionist, Samantha Bond, police compliance with cruelty worldwide, is Australia part of this? Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees will be looking at that. Current situation in West Papua with Ronnie Carini. But let's begin with Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jan, listener, when, like all loyal true blue Aussies, we were bitterly disappointed at, oh, sorry, no, no, I meant hugely excited at the elevation of our former Minister for Stuffing Up the Economy, Matthias Rotten Tudor, to CEO of the OECD, the Organisation for Economic Corruption and Disappointment. And in the quickest conversion since the road to Damascus, Matthias now plans to lead the world in the fight against climate change, if there is such a thing. The man who until recently, like until running for his new job, knew there was no such thing, but now urges us all to work with me in reducing emissions to zero by 2050 or the end of the world, whichever comes first. And we can be sure if we do decide to work with him, the end of the world will come first. He franked his conversion by warning countries they should show caution over imposing carbon tariffs. That is, countries trying to do a bit about climate change, if there is, imposing carbon tariffs on goods imported from countries not considered pulling their weight on addressing the problem, if there is. Matthias now realises there is, by the way, a problem. His latest problem being how to display his new awareness without doing anything about his new awareness. His first contribution to work with me, that punishing countries by doing next to nothing is not working with him given that true blue Aussie would be right up there for copping tariffs. We need to allow space for individual countries to find the best possible way to contribute to the overall global effort, he advised the world. And what is true blue Aussie's best possible way, Matthias? With my colleagues in Canberra, we have struck the balance the world needs between environmental concerns and economic concerns, ensuring we do not undermine the economy in our haste to address climate change, if there is such a... Oh, no, no, of course, there is such a thing. You almost forgot. Let me finish. Balance, perfect balance, and we are moving toward reducing fossil fuel emissions without affecting our important coal industry and our critical gas industry, which must be in our energy mix for the next several decades, technical solutions such as burying our heads in the sand. So uh, work with me. We certainly will, Matthias. You've inspired us. And while we've got you, any comments on the women's marches and rallies last week? Disappointment. Looking at the crowd, disappointing to see quite a number of girly men. Although the major quality that won Matthias the big job was that he was not European. Well, sure, Belgium is, of course, but our Matthias is now a real true blue Aussie, and aren't we all so proud of him? Major poverty, he came through the middle in this battle between Europe and the US of the UN of the US of the world, overtaxing US of tech giants. His major opposition for the job, a Swedish woman. The US of opposing any country taxing the profits made in that country by US of companies. 
surely the mere fact that a U.S. of corporation is prepared to operate in that country and, and make a neat little profit should be reward enough for both the country and the corporation. Why do these countries have to get so greedy, attempting to sabotage a very cosy bilateral business arrangement by wanting to tax the corporation's local profits, taxes that belong in the U.S. of coffers? Well, hypothetically, because there's not much chance of them ever paying them, which must be why the U.S. of reserves the right to tax companies from every other country in the world and drag them before its own courts and hit them with massive penalties. It's nothing but fair, reasonable and balanced. The true Lawazi Business Profits Council's Jennifer Worcester for Workers' Cot said the appointment would be good for Trublawazi's economy and business, sort of a tautology. Anyway, now the OECD will benefit from his thoughtful and consolidative leadership. Jennifer was exhilarated, as were all of us exhilarated. That former big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull wishes Matthias had consulted him before the A2 brute stab in the back. That listener was our tribute to a Trublawazi of whom we are also proud. What a pity that in a week when Matthias' elevation to, is such good news for workers of the world that the employers were left devastated by a Senate crossbench that made them very cross, rejecting sensible industrial relations reforms which the caring employers know would have made the lives of the workers they so care about so much better and fulfilled. But we'll return to that distressing news. Women came out in such numbers across the country that they gave the proof to the anthem, Hear Me Roar in Numbers Too Big to Ignore, which didn't stop the Minister for Women, Maurice Payne in me, and her non-misogynist leader, Scuttle Ben Morash, son, a.k.a. Scummo, from ignoring them. So it wasn't absolute proof that they were too big to ignore. Indeed, poor Maurice and poor Scuttle Ben were hurt, cut, extremely upset that the women had ignored them. It was incredibly discourteous to reject our offer made in good faith to meet one or two of them in our office. Marie spoke for them. And we didn't ignore them. We watched them through our office window. Uh, yes, Maurice, what would you have done if they had accepted your offer uh, made in good faith? We would have listened to their arguments, told them we understood the problems, sounded and looked concerned, and then hoped the whole mess would go away wonder what Maurice sees as her job as Minister for Women. The message obviously got through to the boys will be boys at Wesley College who showed they understood all about sexual harassment and misogyny and sexism generally by practicing it, showing the value of a very, very expensive education steering these fine young boys will be boys into the next generation of great corporate leaders making wise decisions for all of us on the delicate flower that is the economy and the delicate mother that is the earth. But given their attitude to women, we know they'll show almost reverent respect for Mother Earth. Perhaps it was because of his not joining the rally that someone had the audacity, talk about disrespect, the audacity to call poor Scuttle them a bloody clot. We are talking about our great... Oh, oh, I'm sorry, I think I got that wrong. Sorry, sorry, it was Scuttledem himself who said a particular vaccine would not cause a bloody clot. Yes, that's better, because I assume, and I assume we all agree, couldn't understand anyone calling Scuttledem a bloody clot. 
those who claim the caring business class party has, quote, trouble with women, were put in their place by the Western True Blue Aussie election, after which women comprise 50% of the caring business class party members and could even get to 66% with a woman guaranteed to be at worst deputy leader and a strong chance to be leader, depending on the a flip of a coin. So that puts the critics in their place. Sadly, critical industrial relations reforms were not put in their place, despite the sundry chambers of profits coming out Tuesday and warning of massive job losses unless the, re the uh, reforms were adopted. Massive job losses, that's how important they were. How myopic can the crossbench be, let alone the bloody Socialist Party? The gravity was summed up in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, page one, lead story opening on Friday. Almost a year of negotiations and hard work has amounted to little. Oh, it's terrible, and we realise how terrible when we read the very thoughtful and balanced editorial. A precious golden opportunity for True Blue Aussie workers has been lost. See, it was all about the workers whom they so care about. The Socialist Party, it said, had become the anti-worker party, existing mostly to protect the institutional power of its trade union paymaster. It didn't say that we will say it's evil trade union paymaster, the line inferring or more than inferring that trade unions are anti-worker. This leaves the government with virtually nothing to show from its good faith. Yes, how we feel for them, particularly Michaela Koshna workers and the poor, sick, recovering Christian Portaloo. Workers who could have had high-performance, cooperative work, workplaces and the wages they pay now end up in a system that institutionalizes conflict driven by the lowest common denominator, the capitalist review said, and, and that from a source that knows there is no such thing as class struggle other than in the imagination of evil unions and their socialist party puppets. Apparently, the wonderful reforms would have solved that little problem of slow-wage growth that has been so been concerning caring employers who just couldn't see a solution. And now the opportunity is lost. Poor caring employers. The caring business class party opposition in Spring Street are so high profile that a bloke ran for leader this week whom I'd never heard of until he announced his challenge. Insignificant event I raised simply to a note, as I'm sure we all noted, that the challenger's name, a former, a former copper, is Batten. Perhaps Batten should have used it on the incumbent and he might have knocked him off by knocking him out, although that would have raised the difficulty of undetermining whether he was knocked out or just normal. Finally, our Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, tells us we can't rush too quickly toward renewables because that would upset the fine balance and make fossils even less profitable. That's for domestic consumption. But when the world suggests True Blue Aussie isn't pulling its weight, those tariffs Matthias opposes, he boasts we are meeting our commitments in a canter, partly because True Blue Aussie, he again boasts, has the highest rate of top solar in the world, a development to which him and his government's contribution is roughly minus 100%. Matthias Angus, top marks for basking in. Good afternoon. And thanks once again to Kevin Healy.
There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new T-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Plenty of talk recently about the influence and input of organisations such as Google and Facebook. But in Malaysia, a remarkable experiment in journalism, the upstart that changed Malaysia's media landscape, has come under attack. The name is Malaysia Kini. It's been found guilty of contempt, handed a large fine, and its editor-in-chief found not guilty on a similar charge. For more information, I spoke with activist Lee Tan. Lee, we need to go back more than 20 years for the genesis of this current situation. Who was there in 1999 and what was the plan for Malaysia, Kini? In Malaysia, press freedom has always been curtailed. Um, yeah, due to a whole range of issues of official secret acts and, you know, there's no freedom of information and all that and all the media um, companies are owned by political parties and um, there's also the Printing and Publishing Act which um, gives the government just, a lot of power. Just hold a minute, hold a minute. Yeah, it's a okay. bit, it's a bit, okay. it's a bit scratchy. Is there anywhere else? Oh, really? Wait, I will move. Um, now, now yeah, it's I fi- know. Now so, it's fine, but a minute ago. It, it yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. We use a um, a Telstra booster here. Uh-huh. So, but you know, so it's a stronger signal receiver. Hmm. But you know, sometimes you can still get, yeah. Um, a, a, a bit of a. I can repeat that. Mm. It, it gets a bit. It's okay now, so we'll have another go. Can you just start again? Um, yeah, what, yeah. what was happening 20 years ago? Okay. All right, sure. Um, in Malaysia, there's never been until online media uh, becomes available, there's never been any free press. The country has very draconian laws, such as the Printing and Publishing Act which allow the government to control licensing of um, media outlets. So with online portal, it's different because the Printing and Publishing Act does not have jurisdiction over online media portal. And so, you know, because of that, Stephen Gunn and uh, his colleague from uh, University of New South Wales, they were student there, And, you know, they were involved in student activism in Australia. And when they returned to Malaysia, they came up with this new idea. And it's actually, they pioneered the online news service for many of uh, the Southeast Asian countries. In fact, they pioneered, I think, for, yeah, for Asia. 
And um, so they started to set up Malaysia Chini. And became very, very highly successful um, with a huge, you know, uptake by members of the public. Of course, you know, that's to be expected because Malaysia has been shut off from um, press freedom for so long and they're dying to get truthful news and not news spinned by the government or political parties. So do they focus on local issues or international as well? They're actually very broad-ranging. Um, I think they, they also get many young graduates, you know, who are very enthusiastic to build a nation based on democratic values and free speech. So, yeah, they do cover uh, both mostly Malaysian issues, but they also, you know, cover news from other services. So what they're doing also is covering news that the government doesn't want to be broadcast. Absolutely, yeah. So they they become the first independent news agency for Malaysia and it became a model for other countries as well in the Philippines and other places where the government has an upper hand on freedom of information and uh, and freedom of the media. And they won award. I mean, Malaysia Kini has won quite a few awards um, from different countries. Apart from the recent court yes. case, have they been in trouble with mm. the government before? Oh, yeah. I think the government, uh, realising the popularity of Malaysia Kini, has always tried to find ways to curtail their freedom um, and to try and shut them down. I mean, they've been using different tactics. You know, they've been raided many times, and um, they also face trolls, hackers, trying to destroy the new service. I'm actually, a, you know, I, I know Stephen Gunn, the chief editor, for a long time, and we were activists in, in Australia when he was studying his uh, postgraduate in Melbourne. Yeah, and I met him regularly whenever I go back to Malaysia, and he he told me often how hard it is for them to work. At one point, they didn't have an office. They were evicted or something, and they had to work from shopping complexes and to produce their news. I mean, the, the amazing thing about them is they always find a way to keep the news service, and they spend awfully, awfully lot of their resources in um, keeping their portal, their, their online portal from hackers. Yeah, and also to prevent people from um, changing their news articles. So they have a very tight system of security for the service. And um, they have journalists who work, you know, in a very flexible manner and who would push, you know, boundaries in, in Malaysia. And they've been very successful and until this contempt of court action instituted by the judiciary uh, in Malaysia. They wrote about the judiciary system, which is all about board, structure, and everything. And then they have five leaders who made very derogative and defamatory comments in the comment section uh, about the judiciary system, calling it out for being corrupt and 
dentist and every other thing. And of course, in Malaysia, the judiciary system is not independent from um, the government. And so the public prosecutor took up the case and sued Malaysia Guinea, along with it, the chief editor, Stephen Gunn, for contempt of the court because of the slandering of the judiciary system by their readers, not them, not the journalists. I mean, the journalists been acting above board and professionally, reporting only factual issues without any um, slandering and so on and so forth. Yeah. So the prosecutor requested for Malaysian ringgit 200,000 as a penalty or a punishment, but the court, the Court of Appeal, decided to award the judiciary, well, the, the prosecutor, or the court, 500,000 instead of 200,000, which is way above any such penalty in Malaysia. How are they going to pay that? Oh, they already paid it. Yeah, they paid it with it. Like, they raised more than 500,000. In fact, they raised close to 750,000 within five hours. Yeah, within a day. And they paid it. They were given only three days to pay the 500,000 fine, but they raised it within a day and paid it off. And it really lifted the spirits of many people in Malaysia. Over 6,000 people donated, and more would have if they didn't reach that target. People were angry, obviously, and they knew it was it was totally out of line for the court to have kind of reached that decision of uh, contempt. They were even trying to jail Stephen Gunn, but, you know, <laughs> that didn't happen, thankfully. So they thought by slapping a, a high fine they would shut Malaysia Kini down, not realizing that Malaysia Kini actually has very, very good support from members of the public. And, and it's backfired. And Malaysia Kini probably got more subscription as a result and um, 250000 to spend for their struggle on top of um, that. So, yeah, it was a very good news story in that sense that showed up how much the court has been um, distrusted by the people in Malaysia. Were they set up with those comments? Could always be the case. I mean, it's hard to tell. The thing is, Malaysia Kini removed those comments as soon as um, they were informed by the police of... um, them breaching the law and so on and so forth. So it wasn't like Malaysia Kini deliberately and defying any authority order to remove them. So that's why the contempt um, judgment was totally out of line in that sense. Has the government or any government in Malaysia made attempts in the past to censor the internet? Oh, the, this is the thing. Well, when the, one, in one of my meetings with Stephen Gunn, he said that the internet service are more set up for commercial purposes. And so the censorship of the internet is limited. Yes, there is a fake news 
regulation in Malaysia, and the government has used it, you know, to threaten citizens' freedom of speech. And they have picked a few, you know, bloggers or people who posted on Facebook for all for seditions and and under the fake uh, news act and charged them and fined them. But so far, news porter have been spared because I think the, the journalists been very careful about that. Um, so they're using this new anger, which is contempt of the court, mainly because the comments refer to the judiciary system in Malaysia. Yeah, Malaysia has been one of those countries that um, imposed some control over online information through the introduction of um, the fake news regulation in order to try and control social media, which has become very popular in the country. So far, they have not outlawed or charged any online news portal, apart from picking on a few bloggers uh, and a few people who posted so-called derogative or defamatory comments on Facebook uh, under the seditious Act and the fake, no, uh, fake News Act. Contempt of court is the first time the, the government's used um, on online uh, news portal. And Malaysia Kini has been the first one that they picked up on that. Of course, it's deliberate. I mean, remember that Malaysia is now governed by an unelected government that kind of um, took over power through a so-called palace coup, where when the current prime minister got his power by appealing to the king and through member of parliament um, from the previous government, jumping, hopping party to form this unpopular coup government. So the government's feeling very uh, insecure. A state of emergency has only just been declared a couple of months ago using the COVID pandemic as an excuse. Although it was the government that has, in in a way, started to spread the virus through a by-election in the eastern Malaysian state of um, Sabah. So there's a lot of political underlying reason why this um, uh, very serious hefty penalty was imposed on Malaysia Kini. It is, again, you know, Malaysia slipping back into a very repressive regime um, with a government that is unable to run the country in, uh, you know, in accordance with democratic principles. Can I ask you about what's happening in Burma and how that will impact impact on the Burmese people who are currently living in Malaysia? It's interesting that you ask. Um, I can't remember the number, but some thousands of Burmese has been sent back to Burma or, or being sent back to Burma by immigration department against a recent court order to suspend that deportation. And these were probably... You know, migrant workers who might have overstayed their visa or had been um, 
you know, illegally trafficked into Malaysia to work. And because of COVID, they've been caught and were, you know, due for deportation. They, but the court did kind of order the suspension of deportation in, in light of the situation in Burma. And yet, you know, the immigration department went ahead to deport some of them. You know, that's the latest I've got regarding the Burmese people in Malaysia. They are very vulnerable. They are often exploited at workplaces and live in very overcrowded and poor hygienic conditions. And they are very susceptible to epidemic diseases such as COVID-19. You know, their situation in Malaysia is not looking good and the NGOs are working very hard to try and protect them anyway. Finally, Lee Tan, looking at the region of Southeast Asia, you have the coup in Burma, you've got the military government in Thailand, you've got a regime, a fascist regime in the Philippines and now you have the, the coup in Malaysia. Not looking good for human rights in your area of the world. And add to that Hong Kong and Taiwan under pressure. No, not at all. It's actually very worrying to see that um, more authoritative, far-right, you know, military state kind of governments being put in place against democratic governance. As much as I disagree with the U.S.-China trade war and Australia-China declining relationship, China's also taking a, a much more iron grip on Hong Kong and on Taiwan. It, it's not looking good for democratic governance and freedom of individuals in this part of the world, unfortunately. Thank you once again, Lei Tan. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Today, the focus on one woman who has been involved with the trade union movement all her working life. Sam Bond, currently international organiser with Union Aid Abroad, a feeder here in Melbourne. Sam, is trade unionism in your blood, in your DNA, family involvement, even before you became a union member? That's a very good question. I, I come from a very working class background, um, although um, my father was a fitter and turner and my, my mother was a public servant. My father had been a, a union member in his early days, but I would say that being a trade unionist um, was something that was just seen as a natural progression of having kind of broad left politics. And when was your first experience of being a union member? 
when I was 14 years old. So I started my first job at 14 and nine months at Kmart. was uh, asked by the payroll person whether I wanted to be a member of the union. And obviously I knew what a union was and I thought that was a good idea. So as a casual working in Kmart out in the suburbs, um, most of the casuals were in the union back then. It was a, a pretty normal path. But that was the Shoppies Union, is that right? It was, yep, the SCA, and I clearly remember them coming to visit us in the tea room, which was full of cigarette smoke at the time, so we are going back a bit. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the SCA did used to pay regular visits, not just to the full-timers, but also to the casual staff. And were people happy with that union or unhappy? There was no alternative union, and I think that people um, were generally happy with the union um, uh, in that the, there were pretty good conditions for casuals, although interestingly when I was employed at 14 and 9 months I think it was because the organisation had just gotten rid of older casuals so as a young kid I probably wasn't as aware of that until later on Um, I was just really happy to get my first job. And what was your first job after that, a full time job? That was a little bit later um, because I I went to uni when I was still working at Kmart and then did a whole lot of part time jobs working in, in various different casual employment what I was aiming for was full-time employment as, as an actor, um, but that doesn't come along very often. But I was able to join Actors' Equity, um, which was in those days really a prerequisite to be able to get paid work as an actor. So I went to university and studied teaching, drama teaching, but my passion was always in in performance. So I very much saw the union as being integral to um, my capacity to work in my chosen field at the time. And where did that employment take you? Usually back to lots of part-time jobs because my acting work didn't pay enough money. <laughs> so I had a lot of a lot of different jobs trying to sort of support my acting work, which was a little sporadic. I was very interested in political theatre, so I was blending my, my passion for the arts with, with my politics and creating wonderful theatre about the political situation locally and in the world. Um, but it was it was usually in co-op productions that didn't pay particularly well, so I would have part-time jobs that kept the income flowing so that I could pay my rent. My first serious full-time job was actually as a union official after spending a bit of time as a student union official when I was at, at, at Melbourne Uni. My first paid union official job um, full-time was as the Women's and Equal Opportunities Officer in the ACT Trades and Labor Council. So that was some years after I'd finished uni. It flowed on a little bit from just the kind of community um, organising that I've been involved in. I was involved in a number of women's groups and my activism through through theatre um, and also through my time in student unionism because I had been the women's officer and the arts officer during my time as a student. Unionism was seen as a, or a union official as a, as a male prerogative. How did you go moving into it or is it, or was it that you got the sort of the job doing in the woman's officer? Did that, that sort of bring you into it in that sense? That definitely brought me into it um, because that's where all of my kind of activism had been in the, in the sphere of, of, of women's. At the time, it was, you know, my, when I started in the, when I was in the women's officer job, it was in the 1980s. And it was, you know, not long after the Sex Discrimination Act had been um, implemented and there was, you know, some very powerful, strong women's movements and women's groups. We had women's groups on campus and there was a lot, there were lots of networks of uh, women's student union, women's student unionists. So that was definitely my entry point and I probably 
would have found it more difficult to enter through a different, any other mechanism because, yes, I think probably trade unionism was fairly blokey back then and probably, you know, in some ways still is today. But certainly there was enough recognition and there were funds within the peak union bodies at the time for equal opportunities and women's officer roles. We were actually funded in the ACT, our, my position and the occupational health and safety position were actually funded by the state government um, to support the role um, of, you know, the advancement of women and the four kind of areas that I had responsibility for were migrant workers or people from non-English speaking backgrounds, Indigenous workers and their representatives in the public sector, people with disabilities and with a primary focus on women. In a sense, looking at disadvantaged groups in society with that job that you had? Yeah, that was, you know, pretty common back then. ACT um, in Canberra, obviously, had, with having such a, a high percentage of public sector employees, there's a lot of infrastructure within the public sector around those areas that have been identified as being discriminated against. We also had legislation, you know, legislation that had been implemented throughout the 70s, the Race Discrimination Act, the Disability Discrimination Act that didn't come in until later, the Sex Discrimination Act. So there was mecha- there were mechanisms that were supported both in employment and then in the unions to elevate the position of people who were considered to be marginalised and women were clearly recognised at that point as being as having less advantages in the workforce. And what sort of victories did you have in that area? Well, victories, that's an interesting one. I was in that role for 18 months and I think that probably, yeah, victory, <laughs> victories might be far and few between, but we certainly did, there was a lot of mobilising of women around key issues at the time. So when I started in that role, it was in the mid-90s and enterprise bargaining was still a fairly new thing. And it was pretty obvious that enterprise bargaining was disadvantaging women in, in lots of sectors. And it was, you know, benefiting union environments where they already had a lot of power, where, you know, the unions were able to negotiate really big kind of wage um, benefits. And we hadn't yet seen the significant disadvantages except for women workers and more marginalised workers. So some of the best outcomes were just, you know, promoting women to be able to understand and learn about the process of EBAs and, and seek out how that they could be part of that process and trying to get issues that were directly impacting women workers into the bargaining table. So they were probably some of the some of the kind of side benefits when, when those outcomes occurred. But I think for me in that role in the peak union body, it was the mobilising of women workers to see that this new world of enterprise bargaining was maybe going to put them at a greater disadvantage if they weren't well organised. The other issues that were really important back then was it was, you know, it was just the starting of recognising that superannuation was, again, people weren't informed about superannuation. It was still fairly new. Um, women weren't kind of re- weren't involved in a lot of the discussions around why superannuation was so critical played out today in the statistics that we can, see in, we can see in terms of what women are retiring with in their superannuation. But at the time, it was still really new and it felt, and there was a real, there was a deep sense that women weren't at the table discussing how superannuation, what superannuation funds could do for women. Was it difficult for you to be at that table? Possibly, yeah. I was young. I was in my late 20s. I felt very green, was talking about stuff that I personally didn't have a lot of experience in. Like when I... I was organising speakers to come and talk about superannuation and I felt like I was the least informed person in the room. But difficult, no, because I had fantastic mentors and I was extremely fortunate because I came into an environment and the union movement 
has always, I think, provided good mentoring. Often that mentoring happens for blokes, so I was fortunate that there were some fantastic women um, in the ACT Trades and Labor Council and in the unions in Canberra who saw that I had a lot of enthusiasm but not a lot of experience. And so they gently um, guided me and taught me an awful lot about what worked and what, what a win looked like and encouraged my enthusiasm and didn't see that as a disadvantage. I was very lucky. Anyone in particular amongst those mentors? I'll definitely shout out to uh, a friend of mine, Susan McCarthy, who at the time was working in the ACT Trades and Labor Council as well, and her area was in education when um, the unions were really actively involved in post the well programs for workplace English language and literacy and looking at training skills and industry skills councils. So that was her role. She certainly helped me out and also um, Graham Rodder, who later on went to work for the CPSU and he was in the Occupational Health and Safety Team. And they both had probably 10 good years experience on me um, working in the union movement, possibly more. They took me under their wings, definitely those two. And after those experiences, how did you move through the union movement? I had a hiatus. I went and lived overseas. I finally um, did my big travelling overseas a lot later than I ever ever anticipated it and worked, lived in Spain for a number of years and worked as, an, as a performer in that country and got to know the unions in a very kind of distant way because I was an ex, well, I was a foreigner and I wasn't actually, and I wasn't Catalan, which made it very tricky because I was living in Barcelona and I could only speak Spanish but not Catalan. I had a, a bit of a break and then when I came back into the union movement, it was a bit challenging, partly because I'd had a break, but also because I sort of felt like my experience in the union movement was specific to women and that maybe that that was the area that that I would need to work in, that I was representative only of what I already knew. I was lucky enough that I got, again, I applied for a job that the incumbent was already went into and at Trades Hall. So I applied for a women's officer job at Trades Hall, but I didn't get the job. Natalie Hutchins, who was the Assistant Secretary of Trades Hall at the time, called me and said, look, we didn't give you the job because, the, you know, the person who's in the job is fantastic, and but we really liked your application. Come and have a chat to me. I was living in Sydney at the time. Come and have a chat to me when you move to Melbourne, and I'll just put you in touch with people. So again, having, and she's younger than me, but having, but you know, a lot of experience by that stage, guided me into meeting other, meeting with unions, meeting um I picked up a little bit of work at Trades Hall in some campaigning work that they were doing. Um, I worked for a brief time at ERCOT, a kind of academic organisation that was doing research for the union movement. I did some volunteer work at JobWatch, which was, again, a sort of uh, organisation that provided information over the phone to people, often people who weren't members of unions, about their workplace rights, but was supported by the union movement in terms of bringing people in. So it was a bit piecemeal initially, and I really had to kind of step out of thinking, am I only going to be going for jobs in the, in the women's space in unionism or could I do something else? And eventually I was picked up by the AWU um, and that was a, a real stroke of fortune for me because it was, it picked up on, they were looking for an educator, a union educator. And I, even though I hadn't done union education per se before, I'd done a lot of education activities as the Women's and Equal Opportunities Officer and I also had a degree in teaching so it seemed like a, a, a good fit and then I continued on in the in education roles at the AWU for, for nine years. Was there a particular place you wanted to be, a particular job? I wanted to work for the movement, you know, I really just wanted to work with, with workers. I, I, I was a, a passionate 
director of the trade union movement. I had spent time working at Melbourne Workers Theatre and also performing in their rapid response team. Um, and I was on the artistic advisory board. And my favourite work with Melbourne Workers Theatre was always, you know, the activities that involved and engaged the union movement. So I wanted to find a way that my kind of creative background and inclinations could align somehow within the union movement. I, I thought initially that that was by going to rallies and dressing up in costume. I also thought for many years that it was by creating, you know, art around the politics of, of, of the working class. But I felt that there was probably a job where I could, where could put those skills to greater use. And I think the education space was really a good fit for me because I was able to work with workplace representatives, with delegates and health and safety reps who I always saw as the most important people in the union. It kept me away a little bit of the kind of upper end politics of the union movement, which wasn't my interest. And I was always listening to and working with people who were actually in the workplace, standing up for their co-workers in a volunteer delegate capacity. And that's where I got my inspiration from. And I was able to bring in my energy from all of these other different types of backgrounds and experiences into the training room. That did become a place for me. I don't think I ever, I've ever really, in all my years working in the union movement, aspired to, to be a union leader, but I have always loved the work that allows me to continue to engage with members. And when did you begin to engage with international sistership? Obviously, because I'd lived overseas for a bit, I, I was very interested in unions in other countries, um, and so that was just at a personal level. And while I was at the AWU, I did I had a couple of opportunities to go and do kind of short sort of research projects with unions that were international unions in the steel industry, and then uh, an opportunity arose to support a project in El Salvador while I was working at the AWU. So there was a solidarity project where we raised funds to buy sewing equipment and resources for a community in El Salvador. And it was a really arm's length relationship to the AWU, but they were teaching women how to sew. So they were setting up um, classes in this little village in El Salvador to teach women how to sew so that they could make an income. And even though it was kind of in so many different ways, nothing to do with the membership of the AWU, it was that said that as a trade union, we were supporting women who were, you know, developing skills to get an income. And, I, and that, that was something that I zeroed in on. And I was very fortunate to be able to be part of that. That's probably where it started. And then, then I was fortunate enough to be employed at the ACTU in the ACTU Organising Centre. Through that, I you know, recognised the strong relationship between um, the Australian Union Movement and the education arms of the Australian Union Movement, including Trade Union Training Authority, Tutor, later the Organising Centre, and many of the unions um, who had supported the education of union officials and workers in the region and, and around the world, but particularly in, in Southeast Asia. I found that I was meeting union leaders who had done their first ever union training supported by the Australian Trade Union Movement. And I felt very strongly that that's something that we should continue, that those relationships, um, the educational relationships were really critical and it was a really good way of showing solidarity from a union movement in Australia that was stronger and wealthier and had the capacity to be able to, su to support our brothers and sisters in other countries by sharing the education space and learning from and with each other. And is this a, a link to a feeder? 
Well, eventually, yeah. So I had been, I've been made aware of a feeder, and I've been a member of a feeder um, prior to my time at the ACTU. But when when I was at the ACTU, I had an opportunity to go to an ITUC organising program as a representative of the ACTU. So peak body representatives have been nominated from a bunch of countries um, in the Asia-Pacific region, and I was sent on behalf of the ACTU to participate in an organising academy, quickly realising that myself and the representative from New Zealand were coming from a very different place to most of the other people in the room, and we were both union educators, and so sort of seeing that the role of education was pretty critical, and then kind of identifying and then realising that we needed to, that, that while in my time at ACTU, really feeling quite passionate about building, um, you know, or re-establishing those alliances between un- organising unions and peak bodies in Southeast Asia through the education and through the organising models and education models that we supported each other with in the past. And when we were seeking people to connect with, a lot of those connections came through a feeder. When, you know, we had the ACT organising conferences or Congress, it was a feeder who were the ones who were promoting and pushing leadership and representatives through the solidarity work of the Australian trade union movement. So I began to look more closely at the work of AFIDA and try to engage a little bit more with some of the campaigns. After I was made redundant from the ACTU, I saw that as an opportunity because I had a redundancy payment that perhaps that I could go and put my skills to some use, as I think many people do when they when they are passionate about the work of AFIDA. And so I asked whether it would be possible to do some volunteer work in Timor-Leste. Ended up going over and spending time with our country manager there, a feeders country manager there, and with the Working Women's Centre and with the trade unions there, all in a volunteer capacity, um, you know, while I was in between jobs, really. Shoot forward 18 months later, I, um, I was offered a job at a feeder to establish the, the Melbourne office of a feeder. So in the, in the interim, I had worked for the MUA, and the MUA is always obviously a very strong internationalist union, so that really only consolidated my sense that we as trade unionists in Australia, we have the capacity to be able to deepen our solidarity through a variety of means, and a feeder is an extraordinary organisation that allows people to genuinely connect with our brothers and sisters in other countries, not just through our financial contributions, but through a variety of different forms of global solidarity. Well, let's stay with Timor Lest because there's so much other we could talk about. What has been that connection post your time there? Now you're working for a feeder. What is the schedule for you? So fortunate, because in my um, my first 12 months at a feeder, my job was really just re-establishing a feeder's connection with unions and unionists down here in Melbourne, because the head office of a feeder is in Sydney. A bit after 12 months into, into my time with a feeder, I was uh, the role of organiser, with responsibility for Timor Leste became available, and so I stepped into that role as well. I'm very, very close now to those fabulous people that I met back in my time as a volunteer. My role is, is as an international organiser means that really I'm just kind of I provide a sort of monitoring and evaluation support to our country office. It's allowed me to deepen my understanding of the kinds of work that a country office of a theatre can provide and really markedly see the distinction between the work of a feeder in a country like Timor-Leste and all of the other NGOs there, really, um, or international organisations and local organisations, purely because of this solidarity model. So 
the fact that the, our organisation is based on, you know, a relationship between workers, a really powerful political base to that in, in, in as much as, you know, the future development of a country like Timor-Leste is based on the grassroots organisations of the local people making decisions for themselves, envisaging their future and, you know, developing the means and the people to be able to achieve that. That's better supported by a solidarity organisation than a charity, in my, in my humble opinion. And that's really clearly demonstrated with Timor and Australia because the Australian Union movement through AFIDA was so incredibly active and significant to the independence movement just 20 years ago and, and before. In terms of what the, the Timorese people's perception of um, what solidarity looks like, they're really clear. And it's clearly, uh, we, in fact, the Australian Union movement was recognised in 2019 by the president of Timor-Leste. Michelle O'Neill was awarded a medal from the president recognising the contributions of Australian unionists to the independence movement in Timor-Leste. And when we're talking about that solidarity, we're talking everything from money, obviously, to support um, the independence movement, but also just incredible acts of solidarity, of transferring information, of bringing over resources in clandestine suitcases when union officials were taken over on visits there, going and meeting with the leaders of the resistance and listening to their stories and getting their stories out, providing radio information, access to Timorese resistance leaders, a whole variety of different ways that unionists were able to provide direct support um, to the independence movement, which has allowed those people, those organisations to, to flourish and to establish, re-establish a, a democratic process in Timor-Leste today. And 10 years ago, the establishment of the Working Women's Centre in Timor-Leste. There was a, a connection with the Australian unions with that as well? Oh, yes. And this, you're now going on to some of my favourite topics of conversation. <laughs> So the Working Women's Centre at Timor-Leste was established by AFIDA. So the country manager of AFIDA, Elizabeth Araujo, came to Australia through the Anna Stewart Program, which people may know is the uni one of the union movement's fantastic ways of um, providing edu union education and skills and training to un women unionists. And they run Anna Stewart Programs in many states, but one of the most active states was South Australia. And Elizabeth was invited over to participate in that program she was hosted by the Working Women's Centre of South Australia, which was led by Sandra Dan. And Elizabeth, being the kind of woman that she is, would, went back home to Timor and then said, I think we need one of those here. And it was really early day, like it was ten, it was half ten years into the new democratic Timor-Leste government. Um, and the unions were, we you know, were, were being supported in many ways by unions over here and overseas, but there was everything was still in really early days. But there was nothing specifically for working women. And so they established this Working Women's Centre, and by established there were two staff members. There's still only three staff members. They had a motorbike, <laughs> and I don't even know if they had an office, but they had a motorbike, and their idea was that they were going to organise the, the one industry that it was really clear that was primarily women, that was unorganized, entirely unorganised and barely recognised was um, domestic work. And so they took it upon themselves to begin to organise domestic workers. And now 10 years on, they're celebrating their 10-year anniversary in September this year, which is amazing. And they now have a large organised membership of domestic workers in Timor-Leste. They uh, run a working women's hotline um, which is a telephone line for all women workers to um, seek advice on labour laws. 
the organised membership of the Working Women's Centre run their own meetings now, um, made up of them with, with their own elected leadership of domestic workers. They provide support to people who are wanting to become domestic workers, who are often rural women with um, limited education. They provide training, skills training for them. But, you know, they're also active politically. And so they see that um, the campaigns of, of the Working Women's Centre are about women's work, particularly in their case, domestic women, being recognised under the Labor Code because domestic work amongst alongside most informal work in Timor is, is unregulated and not covered by the Timor Labor Code. So the Timorese Labor Code is actually pretty good, not that all employers respect it and not that all workers are aware of what their rights are, but the conditions that are provided in there are pretty good in terms of working conditions, holidays, sick leave, those kinds of things. But um, informal workers obviously have none of that and they also have no social security. So the, the push for the Working Women's Centre has been to domestic work recognised as work and they've got to the point where they've actually got a draft bill which has been 98% supported by the government and that is really just awaiting a rubber stamp now that formally enshrines domestic workers as workers under Timorese law but goes even further to acknowledge that there are specific conditions that domestic workers need around days off, capacity to be able to access leave and other entitlements they're still pushing and advocating for this law to be passed. Just yesterday, so this is very good timing, the advocacy of the Working Women's Centre um, was, was highlighted. Elizabeth, our country manager, rang and said she'd just received a phone call from the Ministry for Social Solidarity and Inclusion in the Timorese government. Wouldn't it be nice if we had one of those? And they just contacted Elizabeth and said, all of your advocacy, so the Working Women's Centre and, and AFIDA last year did a huge amount of advocacy for domestic workers during the pandemic because domestic workers had nowhere to go. When the, when they did statewide lockdowns in Timor-Leste, the domestic workers were either sent home with no money or if they couldn't go home, they were stood down with no money. And so the Working Women's Centre immediately did a whole lot of monitoring, trying to find out what the situation was most vulnerable, but also just to get a bigger an overall picture of the impact of lockdowns on informal workers. And they were quite critical in the media um, about... Um, the government not actually providing any safety net for informal workers. So Elizabeth got a phone call yesterday. This is really exciting breaking news that the government had decided, had recognised that there's a currently a, another lockdown in Dili because there's been an outbreak of COVID. Recognising the plight of domestic workers, the government has said that they're going to cover, wait for it, 70% of the wages of domestic workers during lockdown. This is a massive shift. This is a shift from people not even considering them as real workers to now being recognised as needing a government acknowledgement when their way and their income is stopped. And it's a really good sign that there is progress towards the implementation of that bill. So what we're really hoping is by the big party in September, which is the 10-year anniversary, we'll not just be celebrating 10 years of the Working Women's Centre, We'll be celebrating that Timor-Leste is the first country to implement um, the ILO Convention on Domestic Work through legislation. Great work for everybody. They're an extraordinary bunch of women. And massive shout out to the various different unions who've supported the Working Women's Centre and the unions in Timor-Leste over the years. But, and particularly, like there are individuals um, but, and organisations who have really had a long-standing relationship with Timor-Leste and that continues today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Dan. Thanks for asking. I feel really honoured. Trade unionist extraordinaire, Sam Bond. 
article in a recent Pearls and Irritations by Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees. I'm speaking now with Stuart. Of your essay is Police Compliance with Cruelty. Will Australia follow Moscow, Minsk and Myanmar? I'd like to read you the final sentence of your paper. A culture that encourages surveillance and control also cultivates fear and recommends that compliance with those in power provides security that it is best not to think about, let alone question authority. Once this view is accepted, so is the belief that the ordinary Australians could never behave like the uniformed gangsters operating in violent police in other countries. I think that says it all, doesn't it? Well, I think so, although the, although it's interesting, several of the critics of the paper really missed the point. Kevin, what, forget what his other name is, who's a great defender of Russia, claimed that, you know, I was being unfair to refer to Moscow police as though they are paragons of virtue. Another citizen said I was being totally unfair to Hong Kong police. I mean, they missed the point of the article, um, which was talking about compliance, probably by ordinary men. That was the theme. One other comment, quick comment I would make is that, yes, I should have include, I should have made reference to other police forces like the French, the American, etc. But I didn't. And then there's the other phrase, them and us. I think that's a good, good question. Every in-group produces a sense of solidarity, reinforces one another. It might be a religious group, it might be a social group, it might be a sporting group. And I'm sure that happens in the military and certainly in, with police forces. So we get to, so to, to justify their identity, there's a polarization occurs between people allegedly upholding the law and people allegedly opposing them. That's the them and us polarization that goes on. But then it's the training that these forces get. We don't know what that training is like, but we could imagine. Correct. I mean, I know a little bit about the training that goes on in Goulburn with the New South Wales police. I mean, for a start, it doesn't take very long. It's not very long. I mean, my training to be a social worker in the British court system many years ago took several years, but that doesn't happen with with police. I think the, I mean, the use of firearms, you know, the, the business of being fit and strong, being a man, even if you're a female member of the force, probably uh, a key feature of the training. The colour black. There's a sort of sinister element and the kind of uniformity. I mean, although I studied in, in the, what was then the Soviet Union as a student, I haven't been there for, for decades. But... Um, if you look at the scenes from Belarus, if you look at the scenes from the, the Moscow police beating up and arresting the supporters of Navalny, then you see this uniformity. The, the uniformity is partly, in those examples, the colour black. There are black balaclavas, black masks, black uniforms, uh, black pistols, unmarked black vans. So, you know, as a piece of macabre theatre... You couldn't fail to recognise that scene, as it were. 
and then there's the fact that it's hard to recognise police anymore because they have so much, like you just said, all the armaments they have on them, the face masks, the body masks, to actually see who these people are and what they're feeling when they're out on the streets. Absolutely. Look, the militarisation of police forces has blurred the distinction between military and policing. I mean, police exist to protect the public, not not to wage uh, violence against them. But the the supply, I mean, you can see the examples in, across America, the all the, the weapon, weaponry that's surplus to the military's requirements are uh, taken over by the police. So you've got policing as, an, as, a, as a military operation. And, um, and the temptation is to, um, is for the police and for the, for the politicians who represent, quote, security, unquote, to feel threatened by what they call terrorism or what becomes dissidents and to arm themselves as much as possible. When and why and where did the militarisation of police begin? I don't know for sure, but certainly in in the United States, I think 9-11 is the, is the date from which all sorts of things changed and the world became more fearful, uh, a kind of violent watershed event. If you remember, John Howard was in, um, was in Washington when the attacks occurred, I think, the sense of alarm and the sense of uh, needing to be to have security forces beefed up and to pass more anti-terrorist laws uh, came from that date onwards. And, of course, all of those laws that have been instigated since that time, not one of them has been rescinded. Not one of them has been rescinded, and... and um, and many of them are not used, but there's a whole there's a whole reservoir of these laws, most of which are unknown to the public. You'd have to study Brian Tuohy's book on security to, you know, to identify the whole range of laws that in this country that have been passed, and um, with those laws comes all the paraphernalia of surveillance and, and the use of of cameras. So um, Britain, for example, is a very well-photographed society. We like to think that, you know, surveillance has reached the optimum in, in China with the characteristics of almost every citizen being identified and recorded. But it's, there's a temptation to, to put it everywhere. Those phenomena is what I was trying to get at in the article. Instead of that, the comments are about, was I really being unfair to Moscow or to, or to Hong Kong, which, which kind of surprised me. And, of course, if you instill fear in people, you get compliance. Absolutely. I mean, the evidence, uh, historical evidence of the people who dissent and say, I will not comply, is very unusual. I mean, look at what's happened to Julian Assange, a well-known dissident, a, a young man who, who did not comply the power of massive states such as the United States, United Kingdom and Australia are, are out to get him for not complying. I mean, better that um, everybody dots the I's and crosses the T's and, if, and doesn't challenge the state. That's the problem. I mean, but, but progress and freedom and human rights have only been achieved because of the people who didn't comply. 
there's no place for the alternative view. I mean, I, years ago, there was a small group of police in New South Wales, and I was colleague or advisor to them who were trying to talk about the language and practice of nonviolence and its usefulness in police forces. I mean, basically, they were sent to Coventry. The whole idea of a different way of interpreting police practice was abandoned. Do you see in Myanmar at the moment the possibility of a certain number of police denying that compliance and actually saying, I won't be part of the violence? I haven't been in Myanmar, and until the past few years, it has been an incredibly dangerous state. The evidence is that certain people, such as I think the um, Myanmar ambassador to the United States, to the United Nations, have said they won't comply, that they will support the movement for democracy and um, Aung San Suu Kyi's party. But we also desperately need the support from the international community, not least gutless, pusillanimous Australia. We're subject to Maurice Payne, the robotic foreign minister, never appearing to be adamant in Australia's support for democracy in Myanmar. Before we say anything here, we tend to wait to see, to see what other countries might do. You know, having the courage of your convictions is really what non-compliance is about. And on the other side of that is that, that they will not acknowledge whistleblowers and they pay the price. Absolutely. And they're supposed to be, um, you know, legislation to protect whistleblowers, but um, they don't like whistleblowers. I mean, I, I followed the case of, uh, of a brave young woman who used to um, write under the pseudonym of La Ligali, and, and she wrote about the appalling cruelty inherent in our immigration policies. She was an employee of the Department of Home Affairs. When the case went to the High Court, the High Court ruled in favour of Home Affairs and against her political freedom of speech. So, you know, there's a kind of institutional uh, reluctance to favour the dissidents, to favour those who, for very good reasons, won't comply. And then you had Morrison just recently saying they should be thankful out on the demonstration, the women who are demanding the rights for women, saying, well, if you were in other countries, you might be still alive now. Yeah, well, that's the rather childish refrain that... Um, you know, this country's above all that, this country's diffident, this country's a country principle. It's an, a complete unwillingness to acknowledge the shortcomings that exist that exist here. I mean, to, to dramatise it by saying we don't shoot people. On the other hand, there's plenty of evidence. You ask, you ask the experience of, um, of Aboriginal people in custody that not all of them come out, come out with their lives. You're glad you wrote the article? Yes, I am. I mean, it's, uh, it's been misinterpreted. I deliberately went and read the book called Ordinary Men, which explained why the police battalions made up of men in, in Nazi Germany who had never previously experienced violence, why they eventually or quite quickly killed, went in for mass murder. Some of my critics say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It's so far too dramatic. Well, but my point is that ordinary people do these things, right? 
I didn't use just the reference to Christopher Browning's book on ordinary men. I mean, I, I, I referred to prison experiments. I referred to Adorno's famous work about the authoritarian personality, etc. I suppose I could have scratched my head and thought a bit about the police in France or Britain or certainly in the United States and included them. But um, I have to say I was a bit naughty. I mean, I like the alliteration that went with Myanmar, Minsk, and Moscow. Thank you, Stuart. Okay, Jan, lovely to talk to you. Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees. When you want rent is right. Then you gotta join the fight. The 28th of March marks the end of the eviction moratorium in Victoria. Thousands of Victorian renters will be at threat of eviction. The housing crisis is a choice made by the government. Andrews will deliberately make thousands of renters homeless. If he could stop evictions before, he can do it again. The Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, are calling on your support. Sunday, March 28th, 12pm, State Parliament. Stand with us for our demands on the Victorian government to cancel debt, end evictions, extend rental protections. Join us in the fight for renters' rights. Rahu.org.au Join your renters and housing union, Rahu, today. Rahu.org.au A 3CR supporter. Since the sham act of no choice in 1969, the people of West Papua have resisted the invasion of their resource-rich country by Indonesia. The estimate of civilians killed in a genocide exceeds half a million and many more thousands have been jailed, tortured, raped and disappeared. Freedom of expression is almost completely denied. Access to West Papua by outsiders, especially journalists and NGOs, is extremely difficult and people generally live in fear of the Indonesian military occupation. Despite this, people will not be silenced with periodic protests. The most recent in early March were a number of large protests in Papua province against the Indonesian governments moved to create new provinces in the region and the continuation of its policy of special autonomy. Over the years, a number of West Papuans have managed to leave the country and neighbouring PNG and continue the struggle for self-determination from outside. One is Ronnie Carini, now living in Australia with his young family. So before I asked Ronnie to explain the reasons for the recent protests, I asked about his journey to Australia. Firstly, it is a legal and political case that has not been resolved since Indonesia occupied that territory in the early 60s. And Australia played a big role in the self-determination but with the Cold War, it just abandoned West Papua and then Indonesia took over with the support of the U.S. and other big uh, regional powers. That's the history and the, up until now. And a lot of major activities and events happening and 80s saw a big influx of refugees, West Papuan refugees coming across from West Papua to Papua New Guinea. It was in the early 80s. And so my family was part of that um, exodus. And so I grew up in Papua New Guinea for pretty much nearly 20 years until early 2003. And this is through the support network of the East Timorese movement after the referendum and um, 
and there was that bloodshed and then there was a big um, refugee as well coming to Australia, to Darwin. And so our West Papuan leader, Jacob Humbiak, um, at the time he was under house prison, but we were given an invitation to meet up with, to observe the referendum in Estimo. And so the leaders, Danana Guzmao and Jose ramos Horta, told him to come to Australia and then to continue the self-determination struggle here. So in 2003, through that support network, I was able to be auspicious by the Catholic nuns and a lot of the solidarity groups. Now Australia uh, was Papua Association and the wider movement. Um, six of us, and that's including Sixta as well, students that were brought out under this program and we did our year 11 and 12 and we continue to study even today. Um, completed my master's in diplomacy. Sixta is continuing as well in accounting. What was the situation for Papuans living in Papua New Guinea? Were you accepted? The situation can be pretty much described as the survival of the fittest. Because of the early days in the 80s, Papua New Guinea just got its independence in mid-70s, or 1975, and trying to establish its... um, sovereign territory and Indonesia was a big player as well in that region. So in terms of the reception into Papua New Guinea, for seven years, um, my family saw a lot of those people, refugees in Banimo, the Blackwater camp, you know, starvation was one of the big thing and um, illness. And although at the time, the UN Refugee Council, like through the, the workers did came to support, but it wasn't much shut they could do at the time. And there were up to several hundred people that died of starvation. And so they have to split um, some of the refugees up all the way to the um, to Kiunga. That's where near the Octedi mining, um, where now we are hearing about the COVID cases coming from PNG. There's a cluster there through the, the Octedi mining. Um, so yeah, we were up there and settled there for a number of years. But yeah, it's like no roads, no nothing, and you just have to, yeah, make a life and build your community there. So that's the memory or, and the situation, and even up until now, a lot of the Papuan refugees continue to live in that same settlement area. A lot move into cities, like big towns, like my family moved from Kyunga to Wewek. Wewek is the north coast of Papua New Guinea for the last 20 years plus. And yes, still living in that settlement a lot uh, in Manus Island and then in Port Mosby and there are parts of Papua New Guinea. What family did you leave behind and what were their feelings about you going to Australia? The place that I grew up in WeWork in the early 2000s became a very um, strategic location for clandestine meetings and workshops. So the discussion of bringing students or sending young people out to continue to study and be the voice of the people and the movement. When they heard about me leaving, um, that was part of like already a program and as well as it's for the better for the family and for the nation of West Papua. And so there was that feeling of like losing a member of the family, but it's also an excitement that, yeah, it's for the good. And so that was the feeling, yeah. And how old were you? I just completed year 12 
And so I was 18 going 19, around that age that um, when I made the transition in late 2002-2003 that I came to Australia. And what was the role to be for you here? When I came here, it, I was already clear in my mind and understanding that we came here for there is a greater calling or a mission to come here. Coming here is to continue the work that the leaders have already put in place, especially with Jacob, how much when he came out and continued to um, advocate. So advocacy has played a big role since we arrived, and that's through awareness raising or just sharing songs um, in various community events. And then that builds into um, networking and continues into um, establishing some of our um, programs within the diverse communities, and that's all pretty much in, in Melbourne. And so, especially like as an example, the Voice of West Papua program on Tricia Community Radio, that's through those kind of like, yeah, networks and getting to meet various different community groups. Both you and your wife are now at university and doing higher degrees. Was it very difficult for you to fit in with Australian society? At first, there is a bit of that um, feeling of like it will be a big challenge and knowing that we still have that mentality. Like when I first, I can remember attending um, school here, it's that my lack of English, especially in writing and reading, that already sets me into this mindset of, oh, I'm not that great yet. But the other feeling of, well, there is an opportunity so to challenge myself that I have to try and do twice harder that, yeah, to be able to understand, yeah, what I'm reading or even just to, to write. So putting the challenge back at myself um, has also motivated me to be able to, yeah, sit in the classroom that, yes, everyone comes here, have that equal understanding and in terms of with the literature and it's, it's just a matter of really being disciplined and putting the effort. In those intervening years, how have you gone about being an ambassador for your people here in Australia? Since arriving in Australia, um, when someone asked me, uh, where are you from? And I said, I'm from West Papua and going to explain that. That's already, that was the feeling that I already felt that I played that role of uh, being an uh, ambassador or um, representation, like making that representation of um, a nation state in waiting uh, without really kind of like, yeah, realizing. But um, over time, when my role plays out into be um, actively within the leadership structure and the movement, and then now transitioning into a provisional government and in the past, prior to 2020 COVID, I've been given the, the role to be the Pacific um, mission for the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, ULMWP. That was a very good experience um, to be able to carry out some of the um, lobby work within the Pacific and to be able to work and learn and observe alongside the government officials from or senior officials and foreign minister of um, Vanuatu government and to attend the Pacific Island Forum, um, the foreign minister's meeting, and just to be around that, that gives a, an insight into the, how diplomacy 
within multilateral setting and also the key area is the negotiation um, to be able to bring in key points to negotiate it and to get a consensus amongst the room on the issue of West Papua. And that was evident in 2019 communique of the Pacific Island Forum leaders whereby there was a big call from the leaders which everyone um, the process of really getting that text was also an experience, and, but to see the communique, the language stays the same without watering it down, even though we knew that Australia was advocating on behalf of Indonesia to water down the language a bit. But in the end, the Pacific Island unity comes together and allowed that there needs to be a push for the UN Human Rights Commissioner to visit the region. So at the moment, it is still an outstanding agenda for Pacific Island Forum, as well as um, the, the African Caribbean Pacific Bloc have adopted the same resolution and I have called as well for the visit of the UN High Commissioner. So by end of this year into 2022, Indonesia will be appearing for the Universal Periodic Review. And this is the moment when we're going to apply more pressure uh, within our lobby that Indonesia should and must finalize that visit prior to the Universal Periodic Review in Geneva. Talk about what's been happening in West Papua since you left. In, 2000, in the early 2000s, there was a special autonomy policy for the Papuan province. What has that meant in those intervening years? Since I left in the yeah, early 2000s, given with um, what happened to Timor and there was the big push for West Papua will be next, to be following the same pathway of to Istimo. And so the then President Megawati Sukarno Putri um, realized that the only option that could be put on the table or offered to Papuans is autonomy. And so there was a process of draft by the people of West Papua, but then when it was tabled in Jakarta, a lot of it was not taken into consideration, and it was Jakarta's version of what special autonomy looks like. And so 2001, the law number 21 was implemented and imposed. Like, But 20 years now, fast forward, the special autonomy fund is coming to an end in November of this year. And so now there is the consultation and evaluation process happening since early this year. And what they were, uh, Jakarta is trying to push is to look at um, how they have, if, or whether they should provide more funds to their current um, program. But the locals, through various provincial government, um, through NGO sectors or civil society sectors, um, have expressed that the current framework is not working and there is a big trust gap right now between the indigenous people and how the, the allocation of budgets have been pushed forward. That is one big barrier at the moment there. So what has galvanized like, the people is that the people have come out and recognized that, no, if we continue with this current framework, that means Jakarta is going to easily use that current framework to lobby donor countries that, yes, 
what the Westpapuans want and are calling for is the, the special autonomy, nothing more than that. And so now we, the people have come together and there's already since mid last year until now, civil society, children, women, customary council, including churches, everyone has come out and called that their current special autonomy in its 20 years now, it has miserably failed the people. And so if any evaluation or consultation, there needs to be a proper negotiation process or a mechanism in place whereby everything that the Papons have aspired or wanting, some form of changes, um, needs to be heard and then needs to be considered and then that negotiation process to frame it properly. So this was brought back to Jakarta um, end of last year, October, November, but Jakarta has been divided in its House of Representatives on the special autonomy. So the decision was that President released a, a decree um, whereby it gave the mandate to carry out this pros the special autonomy funds, allocation of budgets and everything, through to Home Affairs. And Home Affairs Ministry um, will go ahead and carry out what is in the interest of the government. So that uh, mandate has given region now to be broken up to um, three more new provinces and over 100 more regencies and districts. Part of that funding allocation as well is that they are putting in place the security forces. It's combined of Air Force, Navy, and infantry, the Army, um, will carry out the frontline um, activities such as um, with current COVID case situation, it's the, the sec combined security forces will be there. Anything to do with education, they will be there to provide that. And as well as um, healthcare and welfare, well-being, it's the security forces take the lead. So here we are, like now in the last few months, number of security personnel arriving in West Papua is just ridiculous. Over two weeks ago, um, or early, early March, over a thousand troops were deployed. And so that is affecting the psychology of many Papuans that it's like a war zone, the feeling on the ground as if um, Jakarta is sending these troops to go into a battle. And so it's really affecting the psychic of a lot of the Papuans, but that also hasn't stopped many of the people through civil resistance in organizing and really strategizing in terms of what is the move to really and maintain that voice, collective voice to reject the current special autonomy funds that is underway as well. Are the military the real power in Indonesia as you see it? Yes, right from the very top. And this is evident with the 2017 election when Jokowi only just going to have a minority government, the very person that he contended against is now holding the defense portfolio. It's um, Prabowo Subianto. Another security person um, is holding the home affairs and some of the key portfolios or ministries within um, this party coalition of Jokowi are all ex-military or elites who serve the interest of the oligarchs and the military elites in Indonesian government itself. Even within the defense ministry, Subia, uh, Prabowo, is, that ministry itself is 
given the highest or the largest budget of the government. Other ministries are not equivalent to that. And so that's already painted the picture of who is really driving the, the agenda, especially within the government and the top down. And so with the increased military deployment into West Papua, we can really tell that because of the key ex-military and um, police ministers, ex-police ministers are holding these key ministries, any decisions that is now seeing increased number of military in the region, in West Papua in particular, it's coming off from those who are sitting within those key portfolios. And does the military still have a great deal of economic power in Papua? Yes. A lot of the budget, um, especially projects that um, are, in, are coming into even the greater Indonesia, usually it goes to a tender process. That's, of course, one would think that, you know, government, if there are projects for, um, you know, community like Trans Papua Highway, that wasn't even given any tender process. That was given straight to one of the top military that they will run the project. So the money goes straight to them and they will they employ their own security personnel and then they they went in to run the project of the Trans Papua Highway and that was what um, sparked the incident in 2018 uh, when the Liberation Army shot that a number of the road construction workers and they, up until now there hasn't been an investigation into this but. Um, that's been the case, and it has reflected in a lot of new uh, big companies, even like Freeport McMoran. Um, they're paying large amount of money for the security forces, especially the, the military and the police to provide security and to clamp down on any resistance against the ongoing mining operation, which now the mining itself is going underground operation. There hasn't been really some investigation into this, but what is happening is that this underground mining is going into um, other villages or districts, which is intent regencies especially. In Duga regency, it's been affected since 2018 and internally displaced people have been in large numbers of thousands. There's underground mining operation right into that district or that regency. And it's moving as well towards other, like in Intanjaya. So this is more up in the central highlands. Basically, um, this is why a lot of the local indigenous custodians have really fight against to stop this, but they're faced with military. And so there's more military that can like stop any form of resistance. That is pretty much kind of like the reality that is happening up in the highlands of West Papua. Nevertheless, in many parts of Papua, West Papua, People are coming out in their thousands to demonstrate, knowing the consequences. Absolutely. And we've seen that in the past few weeks, that numbers are coming out and thousands in thousands. And even yesterday in the local, um, in front of the local government office, near Wamena, up in the Highlands, there were several hundreds just came out and just expressed their concern around this special autonomy and how not benefiting the local people, especially in terms of um, health health system there and um, basic education um, facilities 
what is going to happen um, despite all this and in knowing that there's a big risk that people are coming to, to meet, there is a greater conversations within the movement and the leadership that especially with the special autonomy in mind, um, there is going to be a big push and big mobilization if it's going to, in some ways, that could really um, bring the attention of the regional and world community to a point that there needs to be an intervention. That is what it's going to take um, for the people that part of the conversation now is to move towards that. And, you know, if it meant that, you know, number, you know, lives cost in that process, that's what now the calculation and the conversation is moving to that point. Because um, everyone recognized now on the ground inside that there's no future of West Papua to be with Indonesia. The more if it continues, you know, people will be dying just here and there by unknown person. And so might as well make a big statement or a big move in really pushing for that intervention. It must be really disappointing, or that's probably not the right word, but you're living in Australia now, the country that you've chosen as your home, even though it's not your home. Yet this country is so close to your to West Papua, yet the government of this country won't support you. Yeah, that really um, has that disappointment of not really advocating, even though we're seeing what's happening in um, Myanmar. And Australia is now a close partner with Indonesia within the Indo-Pacific framework to really move in and find ways to really deal with like the situation on the ground. This could also present the same case like with West Papua, but yet they choose in terms of what is in Australia's interest and what it's it's not in their interest within this. Yeah, whether it's on security or um, now it's the Indo-Pacific framework which is the geopolitic interest there. But when it comes to um, really pushing on a targeted focus, like with human rights cases in West Papua and at the various um, multilateral arena, Australia has, in some ways, hasn't taken the leading role, but has really looking into the Pacific to take that leadership role and so then it won't affect because um, if we could look back in history with Australia's role in intervention with the Confrontasi and also with the Stimo case, there are precedents that nearly affected the bilateral. And so at this very stage, Australia is very aware and sensitive. And so looking into the region to play that leadership. And when I reflect on this, 2019 really demonstrated that. Um, how Australia came on board last minute to support when there was a, a unified voice within the Pacific regionalism. And that's where both Australia and New Zealand supported for this, this push. And so, yeah, it's, it's within this diplomatic space itself, um, um, it's really um, sensitive and volatile as well. And uh, there was a lot of um, meetings now and again here in Canberra and um, in the parliament, um, meetings in the late 2019, that conversations amongst members of parliament as, as what they expressed as well, whether it's on record or off record, but 
that is where Australia will play its part or role, more in a neutral, our passive to neutral position. As we're coming out of COVID, it's going to be a very busy year for you. Yes, it will be, um, especially now that a um, couple of um, activities, like with things resuming back slowly, um, with lockdowns um, are taken out. And so here in Canberra with work, it's still happening. But in terms of advocacy, um, there is some activities that I'll come down to Melbourne, especially next month on the Easter weekend, there'll be Blacktivism concert, whereby this is one of the concerts that will bring together First Nation artists and West Papua, especially through our band Sorong Samurai, will be also featuring, and it's a honor to be able to share the stage with First Nation artists such as uh, Emma Donovan, uh, Ramo Ziggy, and had headlining the act would be Yotu Yindi. So it's like the generations singing the same songs, the songs about the struggle, coming together to share that message on stage. So that's Easter weekend, Maya Music Bowl in Melbourne, but also the weekend after is Pacific Concert, where we bring in Pacific Island community coming together in celebration of our culture. Gonna get me busy. <laughs> okay, great, Ronnie. Lovely to speak to you again. Thank you. West Papua activist Ronnie Karini, now living in Canberra. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. What must have been an exhilarating but exhausting two-plus weeks, Jacob Gregg is home in Melbourne. The reason for the absence, the home run for Julian, to link in with and increase the voices raised in Julian's defence. Long trip, Jacob. I would have imagined a great deal of planning, not only for the vehicles but the stopovers, the places visited. Is that the case? On the fly, largely. And when John Shipton first approached me, told me that he was talking about, you know, the idea about this tour, and he'd spoke to Graham Dunstan from the Peace Bus, the initial approach was quite strange. He asked me whether I could um, line up town hall meetings and talk to peace groups and other interested people, and um, he didn't give, didn't give us long to organise it. So I come up with the idea of rather than doing that, just going out and hitting the streets. So what we did is we worked out an itinerary where we, where we knew we had um, supporters in the town. We called them and let them know what we were doing. But rather than setting up town hall public meetings and all that kind of stuff, what we did, we arrived in John's van, my bus, um, Graham Dunstan's peace van, peace bus, and set up banners and PA equipments on a prominent location in the town and just in a table and just started speaking. In some ways it didn't take a hell of a lot of planning 
because of the nature. It's what I called a street preacher tub-thumping tour, you know? How did your bus go? Oh, well, well, thanks, after all the repairs. Only one small hitch, and that's when the windscreen wiper leakages broke. And, um, but that was nothing. We, um, we only had rain one day, and I could sit it out. went like a charm. How many of you went, and did you pick people up on the way? Core crew was myself, John Shipton, Graham Dunstan, and Rain Sinclair from Melbourne for WikiLeaks. Then we had people come and join us. Local people joined us in various towns. Castlemaine people travelled to Bendigo to be with us, for example. Um, someone from Albany travelled to Wagga with us. Um, once we got to Sydney, or Katoomba rather, some Sydney people came up to Katoomba, then some Katoomba people came down to Sydney, and Sydney people came down to Canberra. So it was like that, but basically it was the core of the four of us. Tell us about some of the people you met on the way. Well, it was pretty amazing. Like, we went out to Castlemaine, first top Castlemaine, where there were a whole lot of people obviously in support and a whole lot of people that, as you could imagine, I knew or who other people knew, including um, Martin Neal and his partner Georgie. Here's a story. Um, Georgie was diagnosed late last year as having pancreatic cancer. She's um, just got a, um, a couple of weeks or maybe a month or so left. So they've embarked on what they call as the terminal tour for truth and justice and um, joined the tour to Bendigo and uh, travelling around doing their own little road show around central Victoria supporting whistleblowers and, um, and truth tellers. They're actually getting married this Saturday tomorrow when I'm speaking to you and um, John Shipton and Rain and I are... Um, going out to Castlemaine to take part in, in their wedding. Um, and they're the kind of people who we wouldn't have necessarily involved had we been organising with the organisations. In um, Bendigo, I met a local union rep who gave me some information about what's happening in his union and um, enabled me to talk to extra people. Um, just a lot of, I've got to say it, the people we don't normally get a chance to talk to. And this is um, a beautiful thing. In Albury, we met people who um, run into Julian Assange in Europe well before he started WikiLeaks. Told us a few stories about a younger Julian before all this trouble and strife, which was quite, which was quite good. And we managed to send their regards to, to Julian over in Belmarsh. A whole heap of people came out and said that they don't normally get involved in politics. And we told them, of course, that this wasn't about politics. This was about justice. And this was about knowing what's going on in the world. So we had farmers, you know, CWA-type people coming to us. We were in Goulburn at the time of the Goulburn show, and we had all the, you know, the the people who are at the show baking their cakes and doing their macrame exhibits and whatever come and talk to us. We set up a new group in Goulburn to support Julian amongst those people. To Blue Mountains, we um, in Wagga, we met a, a couple of young musicians who later travelled to Canberra to be with us in Canberra and play some music at one of our gigs. In the Blue Mountains, we found out about this place called WikiLeaks Cafe in Hazelbrook, not affiliated with WikiLeaks at all. And when I, I thought, well, I better ring them, their initial reaction was that I was ringing them for copyright infringement or something, which is as far from the truth as could be. But um, they then put up a nosh-up meal. Um, they were remodelling their cafe at a time when um, 
Julian was first um, seeking refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy, and so called WikiLeaks Cafe is a tribute to him, and they've got a huge mural of Julian up on their inside wall. It was nice to make contact with them. And then again, you know, through Sydney, down through Canberra, we had the um, privilege of speaking on platforms with Peter Wish Wilson and Janet Rice and Andrew Wilkie, Bernard Caleri, David McBride, which brought together not just the fact that Julian was being incarcerated, but he was being incarcerated as one of the earlier attacks on um, whistleblowing that is now seeing people like Bernard and Witness K and David McBride also before the courts and um, facing possible incarceration. So it's nice. It was nice to say to say that it's not just happening then, but it's happening now. And also that it's not just happening then and now, but it's happening outside the capital cities. It is happening outside the capital cities. And that is important. And as we were speaking, for a start, every town we went to, we were, of course, in contact with the traditional owners who who largely came out and spoke with us on the street and welcomed us to town. And um, a lot of the Indigenous people made the connection that, you know, Julian is a... Because Julian's dad, John, was with us, that Julian is a father and a son being incarcerated for speaking the truth and kept away from his family and his children. And um, there was a big connection with what's happening in their own communities. And every last one of them, without any prompting from me, made that connection. So so that was really good. And Julian, as you you know, people are probably aware, has always been a, a strong supporter of Aboriginal self-determination. The other interesting thing, just about it being in small communities, is... The ability to, when I was talking to people and um, both one-to-one and at dinners and at breakfast that were put on for us, and on that I've got to say, when we just rocked into town, we always got people inviting us back to their houses, putting dinners on for us, putting breakfast on us the next morning. My diet's gone straight out the window with this, all this bleeding country hospitality, mate. It's um, it's crazy. But... um. Even talking, even giving speeches, I'd always talk about the fact that people consider things like the WikiLeaks and Julian as something that happens in, you know, London, Paris, New York, Munich sort of sort of thing rather than regional Australia. And wherever we were, I was able to talk to them about local issues. You know, we go, for example, to in Bathurst, we're talking about the lies and the secrecy around the redevelopment of Mount Panorama. And we go to Katoomba and I can talk about the Talis and Nyoa munitions factory in Lithgow. While we were in Wagga, I spoke about the fact, you know, WikiLeaks exposed a whole lot of information in Vault 7 and Vault 8 about about the CIA surveillance networks and pointed out that these surveillance networks rely on a base in Wagga, that it's not about the capital cities, that the militarism, deception, lies, the infrastructure of control takes place all around the regional areas. The other great thing that was happening was um, getting people in Wagga, for example, as we left them, they were organising a delegation to the council to talk about the impact of Wagga 
on the hosting of the um, Australian Signals Directorate and the um, wideband satellite system. So getting people to think locally, I guess, rather than just what's happening in London or what's happening in Canberra. How did your little convoy get on when you got into the centre of Sydney and Canberra? Ah, yeah. Um, Look, cities are hard for people who live on the road because we all had our own, you know, John travels in his van, of course. Graham's in the peace bus. I'm in my bus. Rain is fitted out the back of a ute. So it's it's a little bit hard. There are places in there are places in Sydney where you can where you can camp, and um, where I have camped. But um, having four vehicles together is is asking for trouble. But we managed we managed well. Canberra again we um, we didn't camp together in Canberra. It was like it was the end of a two week trip. We basically uh, John went and stayed with family friends of his and um, a couple of others of us including the Sydney people, actually lashed out and booked an Airbnb for the night. But, yeah, look, travelling well, keeping the logistics of keeping four four cars running and fuelled and, and all the rest of it was less of a nightmare than I thought it was going to be because it naturally sort of fell to me to do logistics for all of those kind of things. That's what I do. Did you get any joy from the pollies except the three that you've talked about before? Not on the tour. Let's face it, not on the tour. Part of what we did is we went through every town as we handed out cards with their local members' name, telephone number, fax number, email address, electorate office address in their town and started a a bit of a campaign on every local member to to do something for Julian. We did mention, of course, Peter Wish-Wilson, Janet Rice and Andrew Wilkie, but... Parliamentary Friends of Assange now have, I think, 27 members, and that goes across Independence, National, Liberal, and the ALP, as well, of course, as the Greens. So the politicians are starting to come out. Anthony Albanese, what, three weeks ago, came out with a statement in caucus in support of Julian, saying that enough was enough and that he needed to be brought home. And, well, he said enough is enough. And so that's now given a whole lot of other Labor members who were, you know, on our side but not not necessarily very vocal, the courage to speak out, and we're seeing more and more of that. Um, one Labor member who has been speaking out from the start was a Melbourne bloke, and from Dandenong, actually, Julian Hill, who gave an excellent speech in Parliament from the floor um, yesterday. That's um, last Thursday for listeners who were listening to you on Tuesday in support of Julian, as he has done before, and now the other Labor Party people are, um, are coming out and saying something. So this has got you wound up to do a lot more, is that right? Yeah, well, I mean, I was pretty wound up anyway. You know, I'm a pretty wound up sort of dude, to be perfectly honest, um, if you didn't know that already. But, um, but yeah, we've got another tour coming up. We've got a few things, and both John and I have... A few other things we're working on this month. I'm actually, on a personal level, I'm working with a campaign in Sydney with a mob called Justice Action um, who's working on the issue of forced medications for prisoners with um, mental illnesses. And we've had a couple of wins there. John's doing other things with Julian and WikiLeaks, of course. Others are doing their own thing. But come the 1st of May, May Day, we'll be up in Nimbin at Mardi Gras 
as part of another month-long tour of the home run for Julian. We're going to go to Nimbin, then Brisbane, I think up to Mullaney. Then we're coming down and doing Byron, Mullumbimby, Lismore, a couple of others, and um, spending some time coming back down. And I think this time, Eddie, you do the Newcastle or Sydney. We haven't... Yeah, so it's... Um, what we worked out, it was a format that actually worked and garnered a lot of support. So we're going to keep doing it, I think. And how did you let Julian know what you've been doing over the last weeks? A couple of us can, not me, but a couple of people have got the ability to email him in prison. John talks to him occasionally when he can get a line out. Because of the COVID restrictions, the prisoners in Belmars have a little bit more access to a telephone than they had otherwise. So John gets a call occasionally. He tells Julian what we're up to. And Julian, of course, is um, nothing lifts his spirits more than knowing what's going on in his, in his home country, of course. And so that's another reason we're doing it, because to be able to, to tell him of the hundreds of people in places like Bathurst and Wagga who have come out in support and stand there and um, are calling their local members on his behalf is a lifeline for him, frankly. And where do you go internationally from this tour? What's the next step? Part of what John's going to be doing is going over to Europe, talking to various UN people, and then I think he's going to the US. I'm not sure about that. But the important thing is that while... John and Graham and Rain and I have been doing this. This is just one of hundreds, if yeah, hundreds of actions that have taken place all around the world. We still have vigils and petitions going to the UK government. We've got people mobilising in the United States, and, and that's at various levels, from grassroots people doing street stalls, selling bumper stickers and T-shirts, to peak legal organisations and peace organisations pressuring the, the new Biden administration. So it's happening on so many levels. And much like here um, in Australia, it's not just the home run for Julian Tour. It's um, a whole lot of other things. You know, we have legal bodies. We've got lawyers talking to other legal bodies. We've got people putting pressure on politicians can't say too much, but geez, the Labor Party conference coming up at the end of this month, I'd be very surprised if something wasn't said there. We're getting to a point, not through any specific action in itself, but the combined actions have taken us from a place just two years ago where to talk about Julian Assange, we'd almost have to start with a whole lot of disclaimers. The start point was Julian did something wrong he shouldn't have done, whether that was you know, the Swedish shit or whether it was getting Trump elected, quote, unquote, um, or whether it was leaking this information or putting this person at risk. All that has been shown to be just rubbish now, and everybody knows it. And the starting position as we're talking to people is, of course, he should be free and return to Australia. We'd not had anyone on this tour. Well, I lie, I had one person on the tour. He was drunk and a bit of a job anyway, <laughs> saying, oh, you should be locked up forever, you know. Apart from that one instance, we've had nobody attacking us, hassling us, or calling for his continued incarceration. Whereas normally, as I say, or normally up until two years ago, 
some of the first things we'd have to do would be answer people's concerns. We no longer have to answer people's concerns. So the tide has turned. Well, I think I can say, Jacob, from the 3CR community, thanks for all you're doing and, and may you keep on doing it. More strength to you. Oh, thanks, mate. Oh, we all do it together in our own ways. Everyone does to, to reach what they can. Broadcaster and activist Jacob Greck. And don't forget, Fridays, 5 o'clock till 5.30. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.